What is up my rebels? Welcome to another episode of Fitness Rebels Radio. On today's episode we have Stan the Rhino Efferdin. Fucking legend. So for you guys, I know loads of you are going to know who he is. But for those who do not know who he is, he is going down as the world's strongest IFBB pro, champion powerlifter, professional bodybuilder. What else could you fucking ask for? In his 50s, shredded and jacked still and in good health. Now, with his clients, we spoke about how he puts health at the forefront of everything. We spoke about how people are not quite doing that. And it's something we're trying to get out there in the industry. So... It's just a great conversation with a very knowledgeable guy. He knows his shit. Um, so please go and make yourself your favorite coffee. Put your walking shoes on or get yourself comfy on the sofa and please enjoy this episode of Fitness Rebels Radio. Peace. I'll tell you what, why don't you do introduce yourself? You'll do a better job than I would. Sure. Yeah. Stan Efferding, IFBB professional bodybuilder, world record powerlifter, uh, aka the White Rhino. Uh, just uh, retired now from all that business and I've been uh, helping other people trying to help them from making all the mistakes that I made throughout my career so it's been a great journey I'm loving what I'm doing right now do you know what that actually what you just said there was a perfect take into I, I just like to chat and see where we go and you just said helping people not make the mistakes that you did so let's talk yeah. let, let's talk about that what what would you say some of the mistakes that you have made in the past because you've had a you know fucking awesome career, so yeah. what are these what are these mistakes you talk about? Well, you know, I started back in 1986 as my first bodybuilding show. I weighed a whopping 158 pounds. By the way, <laughs> I looked like a coat hanger standing up there. And uh, you know, I just thought that uh, the stronger I got, the bigger I would get. And I think that that is one huge lesson in terms of the difference between hypertrophy and strength training is that. It is two different disciplines. Uh, I also, you know, was eating the same foods as the guy behind the counter at Gold's Gym who was getting ready for a bodybuilding show, thinking I was going to grow on tuna fish and rice cakes. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, and I overtrained. I uh, I thought that you grew in the gym, and so I spent two hours a day doing every exercise in Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia Bodybuilding, thinking that uh, the more sets and reps I did, the bigger I would get, and I learned the, a long, slow, hard lesson that uh, it was actually just the opposite. I needed to eat more and train less. Um, and fortunately, a few years into my, uh, my efforts, I ran into a, a gym owner who, who kind of knew that that was the case. And he, uh, he helped me with my first lesson to eat more and train a little bit less. And along the way, I, uh, I managed to learn a few more lessons as far as uh, dirty bulking, uh, over dieting, you know, over restriction, too much cardio prepping for bodybuilding, and then maybe trying to gain too much weight too fast with my go mad and cheese pizza diet. To, for power. <laughs> so, I, you know, I've made all the mistakes. I, when I talk about the things I talk about now, I talk about it from personal experience. And of course that from many, many hundreds of clients I've worked with over the last three decades. And so I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm humble about my, my lesson and I'm certainly not preaching to anybody uh, I just think that I've, I, I've certainly learned a lot of very important lessons and I'm, I'm confident in the information that I provide and how, uh, how valuable it is for a lot of people who are making the same mistakes I did. Oh, that's awesome, man. So, but, so you, started up, you started out bodybuilding and not powerlifting? 
Yeah, I was only 140 pounds when I was 18 years old in college, and so I and I couldn't bench 135. So I really wasn't uh, I wasn't equipped for powerlifting at the time, and uh, I just started lifting weights to try and get a little bigger. And you know, I mentioned that I tried to lift as heavy as I possibly could, thinking that would make me bigger. And it took me many many years to to get the strength. It, it was actually over 10 years before I competed in a powerlifting meet from the time I started lifting. And um, uh, but by then I had. You know, I had built a lot of strength. Um, I hadn't really built the kind of bodybuilding physique that was competitive at a national mm-hmm. level uh, because I was focusing mostly on strength. And I got really damn strong. I totaled over 2,000 pounds in my first powerlifting meet in 1996. Nice. And I, you know, I benched over 500 and squatted high sevens and deadlifted over seven. And what weight were you then? Because you must have put some weight on by that point. Yeah, I was 270. I was in the 275 class. I weighed, you know, high 260s, you know, around 270. So you still uh, stacked quite a bit of muscle on, you know, focusing, as you would say, more on the strength. You still did stack some muscle on. Yes. Now, 270 in 1996 did not look like 270 in 2009. Mm. I, I had packed on a little bit of fat as well. <laughs> and I refined that over the years with uh, a lot of, um, uh, you know, I talk about periodizing your weight, dieting down and gaining back up. Uh, and I just learned to refine that process, holding on to more muscle when I dieted and gaining less fat when I bulked. And I learned that over many, many years of trial and error. And uh, nowadays, we've got such fantastic resources out there that have put the science behind it, that it's just a no-brainer that the things that, uh, you know, that I was doing wrong back then are, uh, are supported by, you know, a great many studies in science these days. So it's, it's not hard for me to, to point to some great research to the Brad Schoenfelds and the Alan Aragons and the, and the RP strengths uh, uh, Mike Israel tells of the world and, and say, look, this is, this has been studied. It's pretty clear. This is what you need to do. And so, uh, you know, we've been able to dispel with a lot of the bro science and yeah. uh, they're more apt to listen and to have confidence that, that this is the right path, even though they may have to be a little more patient. Um, and, uh, you know, but it, it's nice because they stop confusing side effects with effects. And uh, they stopped looking at the scale exclusively in both directions, in weight loss and weight gain. Uh, we've, we've tried to convince people that the scale is probably the third most important thing in terms of, uh, of looking at, at progress, you know, behind, obviously, body composition and uh, waist measurements and, uh, you know, your, your energy and strength in the gym. And all of those things take a priority uh, over, over just the weight on the scale. Do you, have you have you seen any kind of differences in the way that like age has affected that kind of the scale mentality of like younger guys just wanting to get more weight on that more weight on my weight or the older guys who are like just set on you know that scale or have you not noticed any differences? Yeah, I think that the older guys, if they've been at it a while, uh, are tend to be a little more patient and less apt to want to add a bunch of fat. Plus it feels like hell. When I was a younger man, you know, I could put on 20 or 30 pounds of extra fat and still, you know, get along with my day. But nowadays, if I added 10 pounds of fat, I'd feel like shit all the time. So it kind of has to do with quality of life as well. You can endure a lot more as a younger man in terms of side effects and 
uh, just being exhausted all the time and, and having diarrhea and stomach aches and <laughs> all of that. You, you kind of almost pride yourself on the uh, the amount of pain and suffering yeah. that you put yourself through, thinking that it's uh, it's indicative of some sort of um, or required uh, to achieve your goals. And you learn later in life that boy, a lot of that stuff is is really just a myth, and that you don't have to. Uh, you know, it, it's your progress isn't going to be based solely on how much uh, suffering that you do. Yeah, it's crazy how you get into that mindset, isn't it? When you're younger, the more pain you're in, the more you suffer. Therefore, the better the results are. Yeah, and that's not just men; that's women. I've been oh. training women since the late '80s, and they're yeah. the ones they're the worst. They'll get up at 4 a.m. and they'll do you know two hours of cardio a day, and they'll starve themselves on bird feed and. Uh, your hair will fall out and you know, <laughs> they still want to go. And yeah. And they think that that's going to translate to, you know, be, that, that that is going to be a, a determiner of their success on stage. And the more they suffer, the better they're going to perform. And I've been railing against that for many, many years now. It's kind of the basis of my diet program is what we just summarized. There is trying to get people to be more sensible in terms of weight loss uh, and in terms of weight gain and just look at your health markers all along the way and be a little more patient and, uh, you know, just not so aggressive in either direction. I, I think it, it, uh, it ends up hurting people in the long run. I, I think there's a lot of guys at the moment out there who like, we are trying to put the health first now. So many people are trying to like, you know, and a day bodybuilding powerlifting is not the healthiest thing in the world. But if you can, you know, try the best you can do is negate the you know the bad effects as best you can, isn't it? It's not about doing it healthily; it's more about just trying to make sure you do it as healthy as possible. Wouldn't you know, you we're say? saying the same thing. You're a hundred percent right. And I did a video. I did a writer's rant uh, called uh, "If you want to be healthy, don't compete." Yeah, and I, I didn't limit it just to bodybuilders and powerlifters. I talked in general terms that. Uh, the difference there's a big difference between fitness and health hmm. uh, fitness being defined as the ability to perform a particular duty or task and the fitness level required to be a world's strongest man is not healthy but the fitness level required to be a 14 year old gymnast at the olympics is also not healthy yeah and that of a ufc fighter or that of a 10 year old badminton player in china who blows out his lateral collateral ligament from uh, you know from excessive forces and training so I don't just, uh, you know, limit it to big guys, you know, yeah. that's an obvious target, you know, in terms of the health problems that are also associated with the massive amount of, of fat gain and that and the other, the metabolic syndrome. Uh, but also for, you know, the, the bikini girls who look, uh, who appear to be the pillar of fitness standing up there on stage in their bikini with their little uh, physiques. Uh, but in fact, Behind the scenes, what the soccer moms don't see is a lot of these women suffer from the female triad. They've got anemia. They've got amenorrhea, you know, cessation of the menstrual period. They've got uh, osteoporosis, uh, you know, or some degree of it occurring. We see it more often in, say, long-distance runners who will present with, um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, um, stress fractures or that kind of thing, you know, shin splints. Uh, so it's more obvious in them than it is in the, in the bikini girls. And then also, you know, the depression, the, the micronutrient deficiencies, the, the hypothyroidism resulting in hair loss and, uh, all of those things occur 
um, the biotin deficiencies from eating egg whites without the yolks and, and end up with the, you know, the skin, hair, and nails all drying out and getting brittle. And uh, A lot of the soccer moms don't see that. They just see the girl on stage and think, well, what's she doing? I want to copy that. And, you know, just to take a, a quick dive into the dark side here, what the soccer moms don't also see is that these women are, um, you know, they're, they're using anabolic steroids in, in very many cases, the Anavar, yeah. which um, can prevent some of the loss of muscle tissue. Uh, the soccer moms don't have that benefit or that knowledge, nor do they, are they probably interested in doing that? And so they lose an enormous amount of muscle tissue. Um, a lot of these competitors are taking thyroid. Uh, and so, you know, the soccer moms end up with hypothyroidism and hair loss and don't realize until they go to the doctor and get a blood test that they've got hypothyroidism. And uh, just in terms of metabolism, a lot of these competitors are taking clenbuterol and other central nervous system stimulators that uh, generally aren't taken in, in the, you know, in the, in the larger public. And so these women are tired all the time. They're sucking down as much coffee as they can. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's just a, a, you know, kind of a horrible road. We were, we're showing people, teaching people the wrong lessons. Yeah. Um, and that's it's, definitely you know, the dark side of, of you know, that's definitely the dark side, isn't it? Like I knew a couple of bikini girls and like, you know, because they're not shredded, we think it's healthy. But I knew a couple of bikini girls who literally had to stop competing because they were told if you don't stop competing, you, you won't be able to have kids. So they, you know, they had to stop competing. And as you said, this is a thing which people aren't telling competitors. Like there's nothing wrong. I competed, you know, you have, it's nothing wrong with it. As long as you know, the consequences what can come along with it. And I just think that's the problem. People aren't telling them the con the coaches aren't telling them the consequences of taking ABC or training, a B you know, like, like, like you know, X, Y, Z. And I think that's the issue is the education of the competitors. A hundred percent. And there's a lot of variability in how different women or different men respond and how women respond to weight loss. Some of them will suffer from anemia and amenorrhea at a much uh, greater, uh, much sooner than others at a, at a much higher body fat percentage. Hmm. And some can diet down relatively lean and not uh, have those symptoms. And same with men. Some guys can hold on to a significant amount of body mass and not suffer from metabolic syndrome. You know, they might not have elevated cholesterol or blood pressure or blood sugars. Uh, whereas others uh, may have it in a very extreme uh, case with not nearly as much body fat retention. I, I do say in that rant that a lot of what I do is mitigate damage, as you said yeah. uh, earlier. Um, and I also understand that, that, Sometimes to achieve that level of fitness, you do have to put yourself in a pretty, pretty compromising position for a short period of time. And then it's important to remember that you need to back off and heal and recover, maybe add a little weight if you're a dieter or lose a little weight if you're a bulker, um, you know, and pay attention to your blood markers and, and give your body a little bit of a rest. And, uh, and, and, you know, I call it periodizing, just like you would do with your weight training. You wouldn't train heavy all year round or you wouldn't train, you know, with some two hours a day of hypertrophy training all year round. Uh, you would, you know, cycle that. Um, and so I, I say the same thing with body weight. You can't stay near competition weight on either end of the spectrum uh, for too long of an extended period of time without watching your, your uh, blood markers to see if it's having some sort of long-term adverse effect. And uh, by cycling it, I think you can keep people um, healthier longer. And they can, you know, continue to pursue the sport of, of their, you know, their passion and just 
uh, make those additional sacrifices for a shorter period of time when competition came up. And then how often you compete also can, can dictate yeah. how much damage that you're, you're doing to yourself. So there's a lot of, a lot of factors involved there, but you, I think a good coach just has to encourage or a, a smart athlete just has to uh, make sure that they're monitoring those, those health markers. A lot of them don't bother to get blood tests. They don't bother to recognize if they have sleep apnea or if they have, you know, if their hair is falling out, if they've got hypothyroidism or they don't bother to test for anemia and those kinds of things. And uh, I think it's paramount for athletes. They should get blood tests relatively frequently, particularly near uh, competition time. I, there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of athletes out there who or competitors who don't even do the simple things like blood pressure, which I, I, is, is quite crazy. You know, you're talking about blood tests, which, you know, people do need to do, but then people aren't even doing the simple stuff. You know, you can do blood glucose at home. You, you know, you can do, and blood pressure is probably one of the easiest health marker to do. You can buy a blood pressure cuff for like 20 bucks, but yet people still are not checking simple things like that, which I just, I just find crazy. Yeah. Let's on that note, because it's so important and because blood pressure is a killer, uh, both short-term and long-term in terms of endothelial damage, which can potentially cause uh, atherosclerosis long-term and, and expose you to cardiovascular disease. Um, let's hit a couple of the huge things that, that, that happens. One of the big rocks in terms of blood pressure is sleep apnea. A lot of big athletes uh, with the neck girth and the added weight will end up holding their breath at night and snore and wake up tired and uh, not do anything about it. And, uh, you know, and it, not just the, the quality of sleep and how tired you are, but the fact that it can elevate your blood pressure by up to 20 points. I couldn't believe that when I started working with Hofthor or Brian Shaw or even Lane Johnson from the Philadelphia Eagles, that none of them had a CPAP uh, or weren't using it in Lane's case. He just thought it was uncomfortable. Well, Lane's blood pressure was elevated. It was around 153, his systolic blood pressure. And over the course of about four months, we took his weight up from 310 pounds to 333 pounds and brought his blood pressure down from a 153 systolic to a 123 systolic. There was a few things that we did there. The big rocks were we had him start to wear his CPAP. Uh, we got some iodine in his diet. Uh, a lot of athletes who train real hard and even those with apnea, uh, they get a suppressed thyroid function. We see this in women, hypotensive uh, or um, uh, hypothyroid women versus normal thyroid women can have a, a difference in blood pressure by up to 20 points. And so that's one of the first most significant things you can do as an intervention for women in particular who are suffering from elevated blood pressure is to just normalize thyroid function. It's also huge for cholesterol, by the way, mm -hmm. much more important than uh, fish oils by a long shot in terms of the ability to bring cholesterol down. So those are the, the, the big ones. And then taking 10 minute walks after meals, which helps control blood sugar and insulin has an enormous effect on reducing blood pressure and cholesterol, just regular exercise, particularly post meal. And there's tons of research mm. to show that uh, it's twice as effective as even taking the number one prescribed diabetes medication, metformin in terms of reducing uh, blood sugars. So it's, it's hugely important, I think, and, it, and to me, it's relatively easy. It's a checklist of items that you can manage yourself if you know what they are and you're willing to implement all of them. I've never said that it's, any, it's one thing that you have to be uh, you know, diligent about 
controlling numerous factors that can um, dramatically reduce your blood pressure. Potassium is another huge one in terms of uh, water retention and, and uh, how you respond to sodium. Uh, they can definitely help level off any increase in blood pressure. For That's what your vertical diet is. Isn't that based around the sodium and potassium you, you kind of... Yeah, it's, I build a foundation of important micronutrients, you know, highly bioavailable, easy to digest foods. So one of the things that I focus on in the vertical diet is getting an adequate amount of sodium, potassium, iodine, magnesium, calcium, all very important for performance, but also very important for regulating water and blood sugar and blood pressure. And so those things I lead with those, I build a foundation of foods that starts with, um, uh, the kinds of foods that are, have a, a, a lot of those micronutrients in them that are easy to digest. And that's kind of the basis of it. And then the digestion is the second piece. It's a, it's a low FODMAP diet. And it, it, I, I, I lead with that. I don't think everybody has issues with FODMAPs, but it's been my personal experience and that of most of the clients that I've dealt with over the years that there's a, a, you know, a significant degree of gas and bloating and maybe even worse, IBS, IBD, mm -hmm. Crohn's, you know, those kinds of things, um, acid reflux. Uh, we see a lot of that in, in of course, the, the competitive dieting industry, bodybuilding, figure, physique, and bikini, as well as the, the, you know, the heavy guys in powerlifting and strongman and even the linemen in football because of the amount of calories that they're required to consume to be able to maintain that weight and strength. And so I, uh, those are kind of the big rocks in terms of the diet, uh, you know, the easy to digest, low FODMAP foods, and then the micronutrient dense foods. I'll try and lead with the ones that are have the most of those. So it just kind of, uh, you know, I know everybody starts with macros and macros are huge. Calories are, you know, obviously most important. Um, uh, but I pay really close attention to micros. I'm not a big believer, particularly for dieters in a 80, 20 year. And if it fits your macros diet, because when you start restricting the total number of calories that you consume, it becomes more and more important that every calorie counts in terms of what it's providing you for micronutrients. And if you start substituting foods that you like, which is, you know, it, it, it would be nice if you could, are afforded that opportunity, uh, then you start potentially sacrificing, um, you know, as we mentioned with the dieters, things like adequate iodine for thyroid function and adequate calcium for uh, not just for bones, but for muscle contraction and uh, nerve signaling and uh, all of those things. So, I mean, I don't want to veer off too far into the specifics, but it, um, uh, that's, that's what I focus on. And I mentioned mitigating damage. I, part of that is, is getting people uh, the kinds of foods that will prevent them from suffering uh, a lot of those things. Even with the big guys who eat a ton of calories who are probably unlikely to be very new, micronutrient deficient when you're consuming thousands yeah. and thousands of calories, you're get, getting all the micronutrients. But um, little things like just adequate choline so you don't end up with fatty liver. Uh, and then adequate potassium, so you end up with high blood pressure. Uh, those might be things that, that aren't commonly uh, paid attention to in a, in a normal bulking diet with lots of pizza, pasta, and pancakes. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I try and uh, get them to eat the kinds of foods that I think they can gain weight on with less, uh, by, by accumulating less liver fat and then potentially, you know, the, the, the metabolic syndrome effects following that. Well, as you said, mitigating the damage, but also just the health benefit. Uh, people who don't think that nutrients matter are just, oh, they're just uneducated idiots. Um, as you, and also, like, if you're talking about the gut and everything, health, how much nicer is it not to walk around bloated and feeling like awful or farting all the time? Like, you know, or the bodybuilders kind of like, you know, high protein diet, like, people blame it. But normally it's just because they're eating shit food. 
um, and they're getting their nutrients wrong. Um, I yeah, always found. Yeah, even with something like what you might consider a healthy diet, like the typical guru bodybuilding diet or bikini diet, is a lot of egg whites. Well, that's loaded with avidin, and uh, that can be hard to digest. And uh, also, avidin binds to biotin, which is, again, for your skin, hair, and nails, and that can start to dry out and make brittle your hair and nails and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And then these gurus tell you to avoid red meat uh, and choose maybe tilapia or something like that. And that red meat's where all your iron and your B12 and your zinc is. And that's, again, good for energy, good for, uh, you know, your hair and uh, nervous system, everything. Everything. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, some people think that that's a healthy diet. They load themselves full of raw broccoli uh, to satiate themselves, but then they end up with, you know, a massive amount of distension and, uh, and bloating and expansion of the uh, large intestine from uh, the inability to digest that stuff. And, uh, that, that just leads to a lot of discomfort. If, if in fact they don't have, uh, you know, an actual, uh, um, digestive issue like IBS, which can be very painful, mm. um, or Crohn's or uh, celiac or one of those um, actual autoimmune disorders. Uh, it's just uncomfortable. And if anybody's ever been backstage at a bodybuilding show <laughs> with all of the egg white protein and broccoli and, and stuff that people are eating, it's you need a COVID mask back there. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a terrible experience. And just by that alone, you should say to yourself, something's wrong, you know, <laughs> with these guys' diets because you shouldn't be walking around like an ape farting all the time. <laughs> no, that's what I love about, you know, when you strip back to like a food map kind of restriction, because I like to, I, I, I kind of have like an elimination diet with virtually all my clients, as you said, even if um, they haven't got so many issues. But I think sometimes when you take things out, and then you start adding things in, you can find those issues. Because obviously the gut is on a different enteric nervous system. So it doesn't quite tell us what's going on um, as like the other nervous system would. So we could be eating foods. Like I, I know that I can't eat bananas. Bananas constipate me. So I have to leave bananas alone. And they're deemed as a healthy food. So I, I like the idea, like as you do as well, kind of like cutting it down. And then you um, do you add it back in later just to see or do you just keep it as the food? Yeah, it's a matter of, you know, I've said, I don't eat foods I like. I eat foods that like me, and I yeah. make that decision about an hour after I eat. Exactly. It's not, all, it's not always an allergy, like, a, you know, a peanut allergy where you, you know, end up uh, getting, um, what's that, anaphylaxis, or how do you pronounce that? Uh, you know, or it's not always an immediate response. Uh, you can, you, you know, you can have some sort of gas and bloating, you know, within an hour or two. My trigger was seed oils, and I didn't know it for 20 damn years, uh, but I was making a lot of my own food at home when I was bodybuilding anyhow, and so I didn't suffer from it you know, year-round, but certainly when I was powerlifting and eating out more, going to burrito places or restaurants, and they cook things with a lot of vegetable oils, you know, canola and corn oil and those kinds of things, uh, soybean oil and safflower. Uh, those would give me uh, major gastric distress. I would get diarrhea within 30 minutes of eating uh, something that was cooked in vegetable oil. And so I did get, I, I had a good and obvious response. Uh, when I learned that and I started avoiding those, my life changed. I mean, and you hear this a lot from people who, who learn what their triggers are and they're able yeah. to acknowledge, you know, recognize them and avoid them. It's, I mean, it's like, wow, wish I had known this, you know, a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. Oh, hell uh, yeah. Well, I always say, 
you know, what I like to say to my clients is listen to your food. Yeah. You know, as you said, when you find the foods which are causing this problem, oh my God, it just takes so much pain. And like, as you said, your life changes. When you start, you got better energy. When you start pooping better, when, you know, like the amount of people, I'm sure you've had clients where all of a sudden haven't like, you say like, I'm sure you, you know, the amount of competitors you've trained, it's like, how often do you go to the toilet? Oh, you know, every two, three days. That's not normal. And then when you start no. getting them to go toilet, like two, three times, like twice a day, and they feel more energetic, they haven't got the headaches or the sore elbows or whatever, all of a sudden they start feeling amazing. They just, it's just like, as you said, it's a game changer. Yeah. And it's important to recognize, you said earlier, it's not about demonizing foods. It's not a good food, bad food conversation. It's that different people respond differently um, to certain foods. And, and there has been plenty of research done to show which foods would be more likely to aggravate people who had some degree of, uh, we use the word leaky gut, although it's not terribly scientific, mm -hmm. but um, you know, if, if you do have some permeability and, and things are getting into your bloodstream undigested and aggravating you, um, then avoiding those is the solution. That's what any registered dietitian or nutritionist would do. They you know, institute an elimination diet to what degree would depend on you know, the severity of your symptoms probably. I've often said the carnivore diet's the ultimate elimination diet. If you had to cut out you know, and eat just one food to start for somebody who had severe autoimmune disorders or um, those kinds of things, then you might just be stuck with eating ribeye steak. That's it. And then maybe you could introduce a little bit of egg yolk, which would be a great idea because it's kind of like nature's multivitamin. And when you restrict, you want to be cautious to, to not to eliminate too many micronutrients because that will manifest in, in deficiencies long-term that we often see. And then, you know, from there, you can start introducing the, the low FODMAP foods. I never, I rarely go that extreme, the carnivore uh, diet with people, but some, uh, you know, they just, they can't manage even with low FODMAP and you have to, you have to back all the way up to, until you see a relief of symptoms and then yeah. reintroduce. And I've, I say it's individualistic. Uh, everybody's different. It's dose dependent. A lot of foods you can tolerate, you know, a half a cup, but not a cup. Um, how they're prepared matters, you know, whether they're yeah. ferment yeah. foods like, uh, you know, sourdough bread and is easier to digest than most other grains and even soaking oatmeal overnight and apple cider vinegar or yogurt, uh, helps ferment it. So it's easier to digest. Um, all those things are important. Uh, and it's also, it's cumulative. Some people don't consider that you might be able to handle, uh, half a cup of oatmeal on Monday and half a cup of Tuesday, but by Wednesday, that same half a cup, all of a sudden you respond and you, you don't attribute that to the oatmeal because you were fine the previous two days, but you don't realize that your bucket, uh, that your body, your body, uh, in terms of some of these potential FODMAPs has a, a kind of a limit. It's like filling a bucket. I say yeah. the same thing, with sugar alcohols. I did the video, sugar alcohols and sharding your pants. You you might be able to tolerate a serving of, of Halo Top ice cream, but if you down the whole pint and you're consuming a whole bunch of xylitol or sorbitol or mannitol, uh, then you're running to the bathroom with diarrhea because you've overloaded your body's ability to process those sugar alcohols, which are indigestible and can cause diarrhea. Um, and the dose is different. I can't, I can't even chew a piece of gum, and those sugar alcohols will irritate me. But some people can tolerate, you know, significantly more. And uh, so I'm, I'm cautious to say that, that 
if you recognize all of those potential factors, yeah. you know, an avocado is, is widely regarded as a very healthy food, high in potassium and um, it's good monounsaturated fats, uh, but it also has natural mannitol in it. And so the amount of avocado you consume, and that's not just in one sitting, but potentially for the entire day, possibly if you're uh, sensitive to sugar alcohols can send you to the bathroom at diarrhea and you wouldn't suspect that that was the potential, the possible source. Uh, so it's a lot to consider, but uh, I generally include the FODMAP menu with my diet plan. And if somebody has a question about uh, if in fact they have some digestive distress and they have a question about what they can or can't eat, again, not a good food, bad food conversation, I refer them to the FODMAP menu as a good starting point. And I've, I've had very good luck with that in terms of seasonings or fruits or vegetables and even quantities are dictated in there. Hmm. Uh, half a cup of, of, uh, of uh, what am I thinking here, about sweet potatoes uh, might be well tolerated, but more might cause a lot of uh, gas and bloating. Uh, whereas you could probably tolerate more white potato. And so it's just, there's little distinctions like that based on quantity from all the research that they've done and how people have responded to those foods. Yeah. As I, you know, that's why I said earlier about listening to listening to your food. So I, I know sweet potato I'm all good with white potato. I get to a limit and then I'll have, if I eat too much, I will have wind, but a little bit will be fine. And my favorite thing in the world, sourdough bread, I have everyone who listens, who knows me, I love my sourdough bread, but if I eat it more than three, two days in a row, uh, I feel uncomfortable and I'm blow two days is my max. So I've got to try and eat it every other day. As you yeah. said, it's just listening, to, listening to your body, listening to your food and just working out what you can handle. I, I absolutely love it. Agreed. Yeah. So I've had fun with it. I've, I've had a lot of great feedback from people, uh, you know, with the diet. I've been cautious not to demonize too many things. I do come out pretty hard against seed oils. Uh, you know, I've, I've called them poison many times. At the very least, uh, they're a, a, a micronutrient desert. Uh, they don't satiate you. It's not a whole food. They're hidden calories that you might not see in, in certain packaged foods or even salads yeah. and at the very least. And at, uh, at the most, uh, there is some research to suggest they can limit fat loss. There's some, some good randomized controlled trials to suggest that the more seed oils you consume, the less weight you will lose on a diet when compared to an equivalent uh, caloric okay. intake. And uh, there's some evidence that it can actually, uh, because of the oxidation, uh, can actually increase your uh, susceptibility from going uh, to going from, say, fatty liver to steatitosis to, uh, you know, hepatitis, or not hepatitis, but, um, you know, to, to a more severe uh, liver disease. And uh, that just because of, of the amount of, of oxidation that occurs with those, uh, with those types of fats. So it's not necessarily agreed upon <laughs> amongst, uh, you know, there are some people who suggest that it reduces markers of cardiovascular disease such as LDL. Uh, but I don't see that in most of the research, and, and there's some good studies to suggest otherwise, that it doesn't reduce the uh, the the actual rates of death uh, from cardiovascular disease, you know, LDL being a marker and of course, um, uh, you know, getting a heart attack being a, a maker. And so I'm, I'm just, that's the one thing I, I really have been a bit of a zealot about uh, everything else. I'm, I'm cautious, as you said, uh, to, to ask people how they feel with, in response to those foods. Cool. So we've spoken a lot about the physiological side of high blood pressure or, you know, on that kind of stuff. 
but another good point is with the foods because we're talking quite heavy on nutrition here people don't realize their aches and pains um the water attention they have they're trying to get lean or they got you know every time they eat cheesecake on the monday their elbow hurts when they do you know their bench they're not realizing that the inflammation from this food like we crack on about health about the you know diet but also it's i think it's important for a lot of people to realize that mechanically and also the way you look the inflammation can affect not just blood pressure and the physiological side but it's also affecting you know more mechanical side of things and the way you look as well yeah 100 percent. that's important and just like you said just the water retention some people respond you know hypertensives in particular will respond negatively to excess sodium uh, but a lot of that goes away when you get adequate potassium and magnesium in the diet. Yeah. Uh, and we see that even in hypertensives. And you know, this like when I worked recently with um, um, Rob Kearney, when he was getting ready for the American record in the overhead log press, he came to me about 10 weeks prior and he said he felt bloated. He was tired. He wasn't recovering from workouts. Um, he had a lot of water retention in his face. He says his, his digestion was pretty bad. Uh, and he wanted to lose weight. You know, he reached out to me 10 weeks before he was supposed to do a max lift and set an American record and told me he wanted to lose weight. And of course, I didn't tell him that was a terrible idea because <laughs> <laughs> mass moves mass. And you'd be the worst coach in the world if you dieted a strength athlete down 10 weeks before he was supposed to do a max lift. So I told him, sure, we can drop weight. But I knew that what the real problem was, that he was suffering from... Uh, uh, the water retention we resolved with added potassium, the digestion issues we resolved uh, with a low FODMAP menu, the blood sugar issues we resolved with 10 minute walks after each meal. Uh, and I, I threw some easier to digest foods at him like that monster mash, just some ground bison with white rice, a little bit of bone broth. So he was able to consume more food without feeling uh, heavy and bloated and he was hungrier sooner. And so he could eat again. Mm. Uh, we were able to actually increase his calories. He put on about seven pounds, but felt much better, uh, was recovering faster and ended up actually setting that American record. He was quite pleased, uh, you know, with what we did. And it was all just kind of a manipulation of a few minor things. His sleep was actually pretty decent, but obviously uh, in most cases I would throw a CPAP after that too. And we did a blood test and his vitamin D was low. And I, I see that people have a hard time recovering from workouts and get sore and uh, it also affects insulin sensitivity and sleep. And yeah. so, you know, we immediately implemented some vitamin D. That's low-hanging fruit. I, I, that's why I always get blood tests on my athletes because those are really easy things to fix and, and for the most part, or at least you can identify, um, you know, all those other problems and metabolic syndrome issues and then, you know, go about trying to rectify them with the, the, the fixes that I just mentioned. Yeah, one thing you you said there, which I think is important for a lot of people to realize, is when you said um, adding in more potassium and bringing down, you know, I think because a lot of people eat the prepackaged or they use crap salt, uh, table salt, which is obviously being completely rinsed of all nutrients. And sometimes people don't realize is actually it's the adding potassium to balance out the sodium is that can actually work wonders. Oh, huge. I just, uh, uh, someone posted recently all the benefits of the DASH diet, how it does reduce blood pressure and, and uh, improves health outcomes. But the reason for that is the DASH diet um, dramatically increases fruit and vegetable intake, which is loaded with potassium. potassium. And so if you would, you know, compare the same study 
with uh, 3,000 milligrams of salt instead of 1,500 milligrams of salt, you would get the same response in, in a decrease in blood pressure and, and uh, health outcomes. So it's not the sodium that's driving uh, the, the, the elevated blood pressure, it's the lack of potassium and magnesium. And the reason that's important is because sodium is so important for performance for stamina, for endurance, for recovery, just for generally feeling well. And I know this because I've had many, many clients over the years come to me who were trying to do the DASH diet and they felt miserable. They were tired all the time. They would stand up and get lightheaded and dizzy, um, you know, and they thought that they had the sodium restrict to remedy their health issues. But in fact, they just needed to add in uh, more electrolytes, potassium, magnesium, calcium. And so we did that and they felt fantastic uh, and had a decrease in, in blood pressure. It's important to note, as you mentioned, with the, the, um, uh, the salt not having any micronutrient, any, you know, being uh, so refined, we don't get potassium from supplements because it tends to irritate the lining of the gut. And this is consistent with the information from Dr. Sandra Godick, who's a PhD in thermoregulation and hydration out of the Heat Institute. They do all the sweat testing on the Philadelphia Eagles. And they don't have any potassium in their rehydration drink. They have one called Levelin, where they, it's high in them. Um, it's actually two sugars. Theirs is dextrose and maltodextrin. I like the research on dextrose and fructose, uh, a little being a little easier on the gut. But any two sugars is going to double the rate of uptake and absorption of glucose post-workout. Uh, and the water, as a matter of fact. Uh, also, adding sodium to that triples the rate of absorption. And so they have a, a drink level in that is really high in, uh, in salt, more so than, than you'd see in like a Gatorade or something like that. It's really significant. Uh, but they do not put potassium in there for that reason. They want you to get it from food. And I suggest the same. Uh, and, you know, the, like a potato is probably two, at least two times as much potassium as a banana. And so I, I put that in all of my uh, athletes' diets. It can be very satiating. And so I might put it pre-workout, like the meal two hours before training, or with dinner. So this is for big athletes who have to eat a lot of calories. I'm not interested in satiating them. Mm. So that's the point of that conversation. But on my dieters, it's, it's fantastic. I put potatoes in all their diets, and it has the, the added benefit of beyond just the potassium of being uh, the highest uh, food on the satiety index for keeping you full longer. So just little changes like that, switching from, say, a ground beef to a steak, moving from an orange juice to an orange, moving from uh, a rice to a potato, goes a long way in terms of compliance just for helping people uh, with their satiety so they're not inclined to overeat. And that's just strategies that we use that are different for dieters as opposed to weight gainers. Nah, that's perfect. So... We've been, as I said, very nutrient, like going to more of a diet stuff. But I want to kind of go into your training because sure. you, uh, yeah, you still look friggin' awesome. Um, uh, how do I say this? At a older generation, um, <laughs> fifty-two now. Yeah, yeah, I'm on the backside of the mountain, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> still looking friggin' awesome and lifting some. De- you know, you're moving some decent weight as well. So, like. How has your training changed? Like, obviously, the nutrition has been a massive part of that. Keeping down inflammation um, would be a huge factor. Like, as I said, we, we, we touched on it earlier. So that's going to be a huge thing. But what's kind of, how have you found, yeah, your training has changed from the, third, from the 20s to the 30s, the 40s to the 50s. Like, what's been going on? 
Yeah. Well, of course, as you mentioned, outside the gym, my, my, my discipline with my nutrition is, is really on point. I still use a CPAP for sleeping to recover from workouts, of course. The 10-minute walks are a monster in terms of the ability to reduce delayed onset muscle soreness to improve digestion and blood sugars. Uh, I've been doing those consistently for many years. Matter of fact, it was 12 years ago that I got a recumbent bike and put it in my hotel room when I was training with Mark Bell so that after a huge squat session that evening, I would get on that bike and I would ride for 10 minutes, I would, but I would do a little hit session. I would do 40 seconds kind of fast under modest tension with a 20 second break and then do that again. I would do that 10 times. It would take 10 minutes. And then the next day I would do that three times, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, once in the evening. The frequency being more important than the, the, you know, the duration, mm. 30 minutes at the end of the day was not as effective as 10 minutes, three times a day, uh, particularly for, you know, postprandial uh, glucose control, which is, you know, after you eat, trying to um, uh, minimize the, the, uh, the peak and the duration of blood sugar elevation, and then right behind that, the insulin that chases it. Um, and of course, digestion, increasing the enzymatic action and the digestive contraction, the muscle contraction to help with digestion. So I hate to, you know, to spend so much time talking about that recovery phase, but that's the only reason I'm still able to train the way that I train is because, you know, I've, uh, I recover so well, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I, I don't want to spend all of my time rehabbing. Yeah. Uh, I want to spend my time staying healthy so I can go to the gym because I love to train. I've loved it since the day I started training when I was 18 years old at college. I was like, this is amazing. Like Arnold says, you know, I get to pump in the morning and I get to pump at night. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I go to the gym all throughout my entire career, when I go to the gym, it is euphoric. Because I did everything after the last workout and leading into the next workout that allowed that hour of my day to be euphoric. I never go in there tired. I don't need a pre-workout because I, I, I had inadequate sleep or hydration or nutrition. I go in there and I crush it and I set PRs. You know, you watch Larry Wheels setting PRs every fucking week. And that's, you know, Larry flew out here and worked with me for many months a, a couple of years ago. Uh, and that's most of what we did was eat and sleep and, you know, do our rehab and just go to the gym and crush, you know, monster weights. Uh, so, you know, he's on point with that. And that, that's, uh, you know, the big thing, the difference at my age, uh, is, is that I have to be careful about the way certain movements feel. Mm. I got to load the muscles and not the joints as much. Uh, power lifters tend to, to, uh, they don't work muscles. They, they work movements. Uh, and they, you know, recruit, uh, they kind of use their body as a lever. Uh, and, and whereas bodybuilders will isolate muscle muscles in particular. And so that's kind of what I'm doing more of now. Um, I did change my squat technique. So I had less torque on the knees and now I load the hips and glutes and a little better, uh, which, you know, those smaller joints, uh, the knees in particular, uh, elbows. I'm not doing um, skull crushers and <laughs> a whole lot of, you know, too much of range of motion on tricep movements. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd rather do a, a three board, you know, reasonably close grip press, nothing, uh, no, my hands aren't touching. Uh, I'd rather do things like that for triceps uh, and, and stay away from, you know, a significant range of motion under heavy load on my knees. But with lighter weights, like I'm doing now with bodybuilding, I do look for range of motion. I do look for 
uh, a significant bend in the knees. Uh, the knees will travel over the toes uh, because that there's some good evidence to suggest the greater range of motion leads to better hypertrophy. Yeah. And so I, I can use lighter weights, uh, which have, you know, obviously less impact on the tendons. And I, I move the weight a little bit. I, I don't want to say slower. I don't do negatives per se, but when I get to the, uh, when I get to the, uh, to full contraction, when, when the muscles completely stretched, I don't rebound out of the hole. Mm-hmm. And Lee Haney said this for, you know, many, many years, you know, don't bounce out of the hole, press out of the hole. Uh, he was talking about his squat in particular. Um, I don't use the tendons as shock absorbers, which is what they are. Hmm. Uh, but that's how you put more strain on them is when you bounce off of them, like your uh, Achilles tendon or your uh, patellar tendon. You, when you bounce out of the hole, uh, you know, that's your stretch reflex. And it, it, those muscle spindles will, will, con- will respond and contract uh, not just the muscles, but the, the tendons as well. And that just puts more strain, uh, potentially you get the tendonitis, which I suffered from for damn near 10 years. Um, but I, and I thought it was a permanent condition. I thought it was an arthritic condition that I was just going to endure because of what I had subjected myself to in powerlifting. Uh, and then I did my rant on keys to pain-free knees where I talked about how I rehabilitated my knees now to where, you can see me doing some of the things that I do, you know, even squatting 600 pounds with no knee wraps or sleeves uh, without pain. Which is your uh, light pain. squat session now. I mean, you're saying yeah. you light to weight. <laughs> <laughs> For people out there listening, they're like, light at what? 600 pounds? What was that? Yeah. <laughs> occasionally, occasionally, I got to go in and feel my oats, but I don't force it. It's only when it feels good. And again, I yeah. load my ass and hips. So there is the big difference between the, um, the technique I use for a heavy squat and the technique I use for a hypertrophy squat. Yeah. They're hugely different in terms of the speed, the load, uh, the, um, uh, uh, when I say bouncing out of the hole or using the stretch reflex, I'm careful of those things. I warm up really well, obviously. Uh, and I don't, I don't expect myself to have to be in the gym for nearly as long. Uh, I, I take a little shorter rest period with, with bodybuilding in particular, I'm in and out of the gym in an hour. I can get a significant number of sets in. I don't go to failure as often. Hmm. And there's been a lot of good research, uh, you know, lately to suggest that failure is probably unnecessary, uh, which sucks because I've lived, you know, my whole, my whole life of lifting was, was just being that guy that went past. <laughs> we all wore it as a badge of honor. And then we find out later, oh shit, maybe we didn't need to do that. Yeah, you know, but make- it was fun. You had fun. Yeah, and it let us make fun of other people. You know, they <laughs> you know they're not as badass as us. And it, it goes back to the same conversation we had about dieting when you you just presume to think that the more you suffer, the better the results. And like those days of not walking, not being able to walk down the stairs for like two days afterwards, it was like you saw it as a badge of honor when you you're falling yeah. down the stairs a day later. And then the Brad Schoenfelds and the Mike Israel of the world come along and say, "Oh, hey guys, by the way." <laughs> <laughs> that, that, all that, that pain you don't need it <laughs> yeah you're, you get equivalent outcome from getting within a rep or two of failure and they, they started opening up that window to minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable volume and i'm like shit <laughs> <laughs> that's not the way i i lived it but uh they do acknowledge though at some point and i've talked about this in my rants as well um you know the stimulus that you're providing is going to stop working hmm. 
and you're going to need to push yourself a little further. And there's a huge difference between uh, leaving a rep in the tank for most people and leaving a rep in the tank for a guy like Dan Green, yeah. you know. Uh, and you're just going to have to learn to grind a little bit harder over over the years, or just kind of push yourself a little bit further. I'm not saying you have to go to failure, but uh, that same ten reps at two and a quarter today and a year from now isn't going to yield you any results. Mm. <laughs> there has something has to increase, whether it's uh, you know sets, reps, or load, or even reducing rest periods. Something has to has to periodize over that time frame, and it, it should it never it should never get easy. Mm. Maybe what you used to do becomes easier, but now you have to do something a little harder. Uh, and as soon as it becomes easy, then you're not advancing anymore. Exactly. Now, you dropped so many amazing names throughout the whole uh, the last hour. So, <laughs> in in that, I I just I just you know the whole reason I like I love having you you know guys like you on isn't just for your knowledge, but I love all the stories. And I was what session wise. Like, is there a session with a certain particular, I'm talking about when you train with them, whenever it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, is there like a couple of sessions which stick in your mind and who was just like, you just remember because it was just fucking awesome. You know, I did a video on this called uh, The Real Reason Westside Barbell Athletes Are So Strong. Mm. And the main message from that was, is when you train with a great coach or a great training partner or a team of guys, or you're in an environment around people who uh, get more out of you or you give more, you know, to, to compete in that environment. I always thought the gym was where the competition was, uh, not the stage or the platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I've always liked to be around uh, I've always sought out guys that were bigger or stronger than me. Um, I've always said, if you're the biggest guy in your gym, get a new gym. You know, if you're the strongest guy in your gym, get a new gym. Uh, and I even started a gym and none of the guys would come train there because I had all this big, strong guys there. And they always <laughs> were all not ready for that. And I'm like, what, what? That mentality just escaped me. I didn't understand it. So there wasn't really an individual. I trained with some great people over the years, obviously. Flex Weeder was my coach and, um, you know, Mark Bell and, uh, the, the training partners I remember that I got the most out of, uh, Keith Williams, of course, he, he's a, uh, NFL football player, IFBB pro bodybuilder was a national track champion, Nike sponsored athlete, beat Carl Lewis in 60 meter indoor. That, that, he's that, just is, one of those. that is a decent CV right there. Jesus yeah, yeah. Christ. He, and he's one of those guys that just has no stop in him, no quit. And, when he and I were training together under Flex Wheeler's tutelage and uh, we were training twice a day, uh, six days a week for about oh, two and a half months there straight. Uh, when I won my pro card was that during that time when Flex trained with Keith, we would compete. I mean, every set, we'd count each other's reps. We'd call each other on range of motion. We would time each other's rest periods. I mean, it was fucking brutal. And we would, you know, it, we just held each other accountable and, and he got more out of me than, you know, along with flex driving the, the, the process. Uh, they just got a lot more out of me than I could have gotten out of myself if I had been training in my garage or at some gym, you yeah. know, full of index. And uh, so I've had had a couple of great training partners and some of the key components were those training partners were uh, they were always there. Uh, they never missed a workout. They were always on time. They were always 
positive. You know, they didn't come in there and start bitching about their wife or their work or whatever else. It was, a, you know, we were there to do, you know, that was our time to enjoy. Uh, and they always, you know, trained hard. They always gave it their all. Even if there were, like, one of the guys I trained with was 10 years older than me and only weighed 180 pounds. And he didn't lift anywhere near what I lifted, but he was one of the best training partners I ever had because he was always there uh, on time, positive, uh, worked hard, grinded, you know, to his best. And he would hold me accountable for what, you know, I, he knew I was capable of, you know, he, come on, Stan, come on, Stan. <laughs> He'd already be loading the plates on that. He knew that, that, you know, that's about what I should be lifting and then counting my reps. And, uh, and, you know, currently I'm training with a guy named Aaron Williamson, who is a former Marine. That's a, a Hollywood actor that moved here out of LA We've been training together about the last six months. And I've had some extraordinary results uh, training with him because of the same thing. We're, mm. you know, we're pushing each other, holding each other accountable. We're, we never miss uh, workouts. So I can't say that there's – I've trained with a lot of really incredible, impressive, you know, professional athletes over the year for sure. Uh, but I can't say that, that any one workout really uh, makes a big difference. You know, it's, it's stringing together uh, weeks and months yeah. and even years of great – workouts consistently and progressively that gets you the results you want. So I have to, I have to hone in on those training partners that were with me for, you know, for months and years. And those guys uh, are uh, invaluable. If you can find one of those, I mean, it's golden. I, yeah. uh, I actually remember when I, when I, uh, I was training at a gym and I saw, uh, I looked around and I, I just, I was training there for maybe a couple of months and I just noticed that there was this one guy, his name's Leo. He was actually the guy that was spotting me in my 500 pound incline bench press for five reps. That's on, that's real popular on YouTube. Uh, that's Leo. And Leo was only about five, eight, 180 pounds. And he's, you know, he's 60 now. He's 10 years older than me. What I noticed was, is he was always there. He always trained hard. He trained, you know, lots of sets. And, and so I just approached him one day and said, Hey, you want to train with me? And, and it was for that reason, not because he was bigger or stronger, uh, but because he was consistent and, and hardworking. And that to me was, you know, what I needed at that time. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're still fast friends today, even though I've moved from, uh, from Tacoma here to Las Vegas and haven't trained with him in 10 years. But uh, it's, uh, it's those types of individuals or those types of environments that you need to find. Even if you're the smallest guy and you're, you know, uh, nervous or insecure or whatever, you know, that's why people go to, to West Side Barbell. That's why people go to um, super training is, is to be, it's to, you know, get into that environment. Um, you know, I think, uh, what does Damon John call it? The power of broke. When I wanted to become a pro bodybuilder, you know, I was living in, I was a fat cat living in Seattle with very successful business. I mean, some of you guys saw my video, my Rhino's Cribs video with my $2 million house and on a lake and a Rolls Royce and boats and all that shit. I packed two bags, got on a plane and flew down and stayed an extended stay for damn near five months. So I could train with Flex and Mark Bell and came home like twice during that time. I had to immerse myself in that environment. Nobody living in a $2 million home cruising around a Rolls Royce is going to go fucking crush themselves mm -hmm. every day. Uh, you know, until they're, until they're, uh, my, uh, my throat was actually collapsing. I could hardly breathe. I was <laughs> wheezing. You know, my trachea was collapsing uh, on a lot of those workouts. And Flex had to talk me through breathing. Uh, and it was that 
it was, it was that intense that he would have to come up to me and he would have to count my inhale through my nose and count my exhale to get all the carbon dioxide out and control my, my gaze. He had to look me in the eyes because my eyes were wandering all over the place. And I was, I was like, you know, I was hyperventilating and breathing and, uh, you know, I was just panicking is what I was. And he had to calm me down and his experience in, in martial arts, uh, taught him uh, mm. to do that kind of thing. And so, I mean, there's so many little stories like that, that, you know, when uh, I set my world record in powerlifting, um, the 854 uh, no knee wrap squat uh, at, uh, at Mark Bell's meet, um, I hit an 822 and it was really, really hard. It was a grinder and I, I just, I wasn't feeling 100% that day. And that was my first, that was my opener. And uh, I was like, Jesus. And there's some video of me backstage with Mark Bell when I said, uh, I said, I think that's it. I'm going to move on to the next lift. And, and he said, he said, no, I think you got it. Uh, and I was trying to beat Konstantin Konstantinov's record. And so I, you know, I'd kind of written KK's numbers up and my numbers and what I needed to, uh, to set the record that day. And, um, and Mark came up and he started talking to me, he started talking in my ear. He started calming me down. He told me he was going to scratch the second lift and we would, you know, we'd, uh, give myself a little rest, a little time to get myself together. And he went up to the judge's table and said, he's going to scratch the second lift. And he put in an 854 for the third, but I had told him I was moving on. I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> you know. And uh, sure enough, he came back and he, you know, he started talking to me about my lifts and training and in practice and you got this and, uh, you know, just breathe and just, you know, get yourself together. And sure enough, you know, after about a 12 minute rest, I went back up there and hit that 854 all time world record in the squat. If a fly had landed on that bar, I would have missed that squat. <laughs> and uh, those are, you know, little moments like that are the things that I, that I remember is, is the, the emotional part uh, with, you know, Mark in my ear or flex in my ear, or, uh, training with um, guys who really kind of got the most out of you. And I, I wish that well upon anybody who, who wants to be successful or to enjoy their journey in sports, that they can find a, a coach or a training partner or a team uh, that can push them to that next level. Dude, that is just like, oh, that was music to my ears. I was actually kind of getting a bit emotional then because I was thinking back to when um, I, because I, at one point I was in the gym in an environment and I had my buddies, I went from... I think it was about 80 kilos up to 110 kilos in a good couple of years. And it's just having those guys around you and everything. It was just, you, you were sending me back there. It was just, yeah, I don't think anyone realizes to have someone, have those guys around you in those sessions is just, uh, it's gold and it's memories. Yeah, 100%. It's literally what, get, it's, it's what gets you. It's like being part of a team like being a rugby team, NFL, whatever, having those training partners and, and having that gym. I was like, I always say when people say, clients say to me, oh, what gym should I go to? I'm like, whatever one makes you want to work. If you walk into yeah. the gym and you don't want to train in that gym, then don't go to that one. Go somewhere where it makes you want to work, that you walk in there, it gets you going, and, it, and you just fucking want to go for it. Agreed, 100%. Yeah, when COVID hit here, all the gyms closed down. I was fortunate to have a garage gym. Uh, I've got a, a pretty nice setup in my garage and everybody came here. I mean, at one time, it's just a little three car garage. It's nothing spectacular, but there was at one point we had like 16 guys in here <laughs> working our way around and training, but we had some, we had some fucking incredible workouts this yeah. summer. 
with all the gyms closed, we were in here just crushing it. And everybody was, you know, helping everybody else and encouraging everybody else set by set. And uh, man, that was, it was a hell of a summer. We're back in the gyms now, mainly for the air conditioning because it's 115 minutes <laughs> here in my garage. Yeah, my garage isn't very cool. And so we're back in the gyms, but we miss it. Uh, but we're still getting great workouts. And, uh, you know, the air conditioning does matter. <laughs> <laughs> I did, you know. It's another difference between being 50 and being 25. Yeah. <laughs> you start to like air conditioning, you know. There's only a certain amount of pain I'm willing to subject myself to. And, and you know, I don't know how Ronnie Coleman did it all those years down in that hot box in, in uh, Texas. Uh, I suppose born and bred, so you kind of get used to it, I suppose. Yeah. But anyway, dude, I won't keep you for any longer because I think that last 10, 15 minutes was absolutely spot on and a great, uh, it's a great position to finish on, I think. Yeah, so, thank you, brother. If you want to go train, I did legs this morning. We had a fucking amazing workout and I just, you know, this is, there's nothing better in life to, to put yourself in a position to be successful and to have those kinds of experiences. Yeah. And like you said, like Jim, our training partner. So I'm glad we talked about it. I'm uh, Dude, you have me absolutely, like I said, I, I got injured since, like I said, when I was back in my days, I've been injured the last couple of years, just getting back into my training now. And the yeah. one thing I've got to search for, it's like, like you said, I'm living in an area which is a bit more affluent. So the, the kind of gyms which I want aren't really close by. Right. But, and I've been using the drive as an excuse, but I think after this conversation, you have literally just, yeah, I've, yeah, I'm going to, I'm driving to these other gyms now. I, I've got to sort my shit out and you yeah. have, I'm not even kidding you. You've completely just got me, get me buzzing and yeah, yeah it's on. That's great. I Thanks. still love, training, man. I still love training. I'll do whatever it takes to, to create an environment that allows me to enjoy yeah. it the way that I do now. And I've been doing that for so long. I just can't imagine I feel really bad for the people who didn't have that outlet. Uh, it, it's, you know, I don't want to be, uh, take this to a, you know, a bad place after all that excitement, but, uh, you know, it, it's hard for folks that for a lot of people that is their release. That is the way they stay sane. Yeah. Uh, is their church. That's where they worship. Uh, it's where they're, you know, uh, so it's really difficult and, you know, to not have the gyms open for as many months, mm. depending on where you're at as they were. Uh, a lot of folks got into a pretty dark place. Right, it's why, yeah. it's why I traveled the country with Bobby. Even you know, as much as we were criticized for uh, for doing the seminars, we we thought that the COVID was the restrictions were starting to ease up, and then there was kind of a recurrence. And um, uh, but I was already you know I'd already embarked on my sixty cities and sixty days tour of the United States, the, all forty eight you know continental U.S. states plus D.C. Uh, did a seminar every single night for sixty nights. I drove over 16,000 miles in an RV and I saw had over 4,000 people uh, register and attend the seminars all over the country. Uh, and that's what I saw. I saw Americans, um, you know, who, who were, uh, you know, missed their gym and loved training and uh, everybody was happy and they were all in there together. And I didn't see all the divisiveness that you see on the news. And, uh, you know, I shook a lot of hands and hugged a lot of folks and we shared a lot of stories and, uh, real emotional experience, and it just uh, you know, I'm just grateful to have had the opportunity and have that audience to to do that. So uh, I just I just hope that people can have the same 
enjoyment uh, and benefits from training that you and I enjoy. Yeah, I, as I said, I, you you were right there. If this happened oh, three years ago, it would have been I would have been in a different place, uh, as you just said. Yeah, as you training's helped me throughout the years, and luckily, luckily, I'm in a better mental headspace now. That the gym's closing for six months didn't, you know, it didn't get to me. But as you said, three years ago, it would have been a completely different outcome. Yeah. I, so, yeah, to, to all those people, hopefully, you know, hopefully they're all good now. The gyms are open. Hopefully they're back, sorting their heads out and loving it again. Cool. But, um, if people want to get a hold of you, want to look at what you're doing, where do they catch you at? Everything's at Stan Efforting. My uh, website is staneffording.com. And I've got my Vertical Diet ebook on there and my meal prep company they can check out. Uh, lots of great content on YouTube, Stan Efforting. Uh, my rhinos rants. I poured a lot of time and energy into those. And, yeah, they're uh, good. They're, they're good. Thank you. And then uh, Instagram at Stan Efforting. So you can find everything at Stan Efforting. Perfect, dude. Well, thank you so much. You seriously have uh, got me buzzing now. That last 15 minutes has got me totally psyched up to sort my shit out over the next few months. I hit 40 in four months. So uh, yeah, I'm going to sort my shit out for the big 4 down to you, Just buddy. a young man. <laughs> <laughs> not feeling it, not feeling it, but I'll take it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, brother. I appreciate uh, your time and your audience. Uh, no. I'm very grateful for it. Seriously, dude. Thank you so much.